doctors in the house, so lend them your ears. The things he can say might even make your day. He might even help your pain go away. The doctor is in the house. The doctor is in the house. Let the doctor know what's bothering you. I'm sure he can tell you just what to do. Fred and doctor is in the house and this is Dr. Ron host of Dr. Ron unfiltered uncensored and what a show we have for you tonight ladies and gentlemen two high power blockbusting uh, guests and as I tell you every week please practice an attitude of gratitude toward yourself and others because when you are more aware and appreciative of the good things that either you or other people do it's usually easier to accept the unfavorable things, too. Ladies and gentlemen, this show has no sponsors. We are self-funding, uh, so I have to read something to you to keep everybody happy. This program contains general medical information. The medical information heard on this program is not advice and should not be treated as such. The information is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should never delay seeking medical advice, disregard medical advice, or discontinue medical treatment because of information heard on this program. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained for this program with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician. That being said, ladies and gentlemen, I do have to apologize for last week's uh, technical difficulty. The show never got off the ground, and uh, Mr. Polyafko and Dr. Powers were left uh, hanging with uh, after they planned to be on the program. Uh, so uh, it was a block talk radio technical glitch, and, uh, and they did nothing about it, but that's the way it goes. So let's uh, we have a blockbuster show tonight, and, and our first uh, – guest is uh, Frank Polyafko. And, and I've known Frank for many, many, many years. I uh, had started a group in Chester, Pennsylvania called the Emergency Medical Associates. And Frank was a nurse at that time. And, you know, Frank has gone on, uh, started his own company as an entrepreneur with emergency training excellence. He is, has started up programs in New York and Miami, uh, he graduated from nursing school in 1971, and I guess I'll say it before he does. He's probably one of the few nurses that wouldn't kiss me. But be that as it may, Frank, 
<laughs> why don't you why don't you tell our audience about your great career and what you've done in the field of cardiopulmonary resuscitation? Well, first of all, I have to say I'm the only nurse I know you never tried to kiss, but I won't go any further than that. Uh, thank you for having me on, Dr. Ron. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, my background is emergency nursing and emergency medical services. Um, served for three years as director of EMS for the city of New York, then Miami, then I started the company you mentioned. And in the last 20 years, I've been working on the issue of sudden cardiac arrest. Uh, established and ran a foundation to help set up uh, defibrillator programs. And for the past 10 years, I've worked as the Federal Aviation Administration's um, manager of their uh, cardiac arrest response program. Um, so I've had you know, a full spectrum of emergency care involvement for the past 50 years, um, starting with your tutelage and, and mentorship when I first was, was getting going. Um, and um, so when I hear things about CPR and, and resuscitation, my ears perk up. And uh, I saw an email recently that, that this uh, message has been circulating again about you can do CPR on yourself. Yeah, Frank. Let me let me let, let let me put this in perspective for for our audience. Uh, okay. And and you're absolutely right. Uh, I I got an email from a dear friend of this show, Dr. Will Wong, and he said, "What do you think of this email?" And it is exactly what Frank started to say: how to survive a heart attack when alone. And the email says, "Since many people are alone when they suffer a heart attack without help, the person whose heart is beating improperly or who begins to feel faint." has only about 10 seconds left before losing consciousness. And it goes on and on and that you should take a deep breath and cough and what have you. And I read this and I said, you know, I, I know the person that's an expert in this. And before I just blindly forward it, let me call Frank Poliafko. And go ahead, Frank. That's where you came in. Well, it, again, it has made the rounds of the Internet for the past 15 years, and it is totally bogus. It has been debunked many, many times over is actually dangerous. First of all, cardiac arrest and a heart attack are two different events. Cardi a, a heart attack can lead to cardiac arrest, but we now know that more than half of the cardiac arrest that occurred did not start with a heart attack with damaged heart muscle. Um, for sudden cardiac arrest, the first time somebody knows they're in trouble, they're on the floor unconscious. So there is no time. If they're having a heart attack, uh, the medical term myocardial infarction, where the blood vessel is blocked and there's damaged heart muscle, the worst thing to do while you're still conscious is to exert yourself at all. So coughing during that episode is dangerous to the heart. It could cause cardiac arrest uh, as, if, as well as more damage to the heart. Cardiac arrest in and of itself, there's nothing you can do for yourself, absolutely nothing. Uh, the key there is to have people around you uh, as well as yourself be trained to start CPR uh, and get, uh, get 911 on the way, and if at all possible, to use an AED, an automated external defibrillator, which is dramatically reducing the numbers of, of premature cardiac arrest deaths. Um, but the choking, coughing issue, it's just, it just doesn't make sense. It sounds interesting, and a lot of times when things are interesting, people pick up some half-truths and start talking about it as though it was a reality. It is absolutely dangerous, and it doesn't work. So if you have a sudden cardiac arrest, what does that mean to you? A sudden cardiac arrest is an electrical malfunction in the heart where the heart's mechanism that causes the heart to beat, to squeeze and relax, squeeze and relax, that mechanism gets to the point where it can't function, and the heart goes into a chaotic rhythm where it's 
like vibrating instead of squeezing, instead of pumping, it's electrical anarchy. It's totally out of control. The only thing that's going to help that is defibrillation. We've known that since the 50s. Um, we tried to get it to the streets in the 70s by instituting uh, mobile intensive care units and paramedic programs. But as good as they are, they can't get there fast enough. You have to defibrillate within that first five minutes to really make a difference, ideally three to five minutes. So we have to correct the electrical problem. In the interim, CPR is a holding pattern. It temporarily sends oxygen to the brain until we can defibrillate. CPR was never intended to work by itself, despite the, the TV images on old shows like Baywatch and some of the other medical shows. You don't do CPR. They wake up and say, thanks, I needed that. I know you've done more than me, but I've been involved in about 300 cardiac arrest situations. Never once saw anybody wake up and say, thanks, doc, I needed that. Uh, they don't right. do that. Um, if we can defibrillate them, there's a good chance that they're going to continue a normal, healthy, productive life. The vast majority of sudden cardiac arrest victims, by the way, are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. So we're not talking about old-timers like me and you uh, who have sudden cardiac arrest. But that means people have to be ready, and that's really the key is to get people ready. Uh, and telling the victim they can get ready by themselves just doesn't make any sense at all. And, and the sudden cardiac arrest, by definition, the, the person experiencing it will probably be on the ground and maybe somewhat unconscious. Is that right? Absolutely unconscious. In fact, it's really easy to tell if they're in cardiac arrest. They've collapsed, there's no breathing, and there's no response. Really easy to right. tell. You see somebody collapse, don't, don't think they're in cardiac arrest while they're talking, do you? Um, they, they collapse. They clearly are not responsive when you shake them and yell at them. And when you check, they're not breathing. You know, the old days you had to check for a pulse. Don't have to worry about that. If they're not breathing, they don't have a heartbeat. So we start CPR immediately and call for 911, get EMS on the way. If an AED is available, use that defibrillator and then continue CPR until EMS shows up. That's, that's the only thing that can make a difference, and it's making a dramatic difference. Uh, when AEDs are in place, uh, for example, in flight, the airlines must carry them. Prior to, to the, that ruling in 2000, there was no survivors of cardiac arrest if it happened in flight. Today, there's 50% of cardiac arrest survive. That's, that's amazing because defibrillators are there. On the ground, we're seeing programs now with 70 75% save rates as opposed to 5 to 15% save rates without early defibrillation. So it really does make the difference, but it's a system. It takes people to be trained properly, comfortable enough to do, to do it, to do CPR and use the AED. It takes quick response from EMS and then getting them to the right hospital. Um, used to be a, a, the rescue captain in Jacksonville, Florida, used to have a famous quote when they started their medic program, is that often people think if they run to the ER, they'll be in the arms of Jesus, and 10 minutes later they are because they went to the wrong hospital. Uh, right. Well, that's improved dramatically with the advent of emergency medicine, which you helped to pioneer. But still, there are certain hospitals that are better at, at these cardiac problems than others, and we just need to know where those are and get to those right hospitals. So uh, CPR, in, uh, when it was traditionally taught, was, uh, you know, so many pumps plus so many breaths. Uh, now that's all changed, hasn't it? Well, the numbers keep changing, but the basics have never changed. And I, I reduce it to three steps. Know where to put your hands, know where to put your mouth, and don't switch them. Uh, if you pump on the face <laughs> and blow on the chest, that's not going to help. Uh, seriously, <laughs> the, you know, they've gone from 15 to 1 and 30 to 2. 
but those are approximations. That what you're trying to do is create a, some blood flow and to squeeze rhythmically, uh, generally to the beat of staying alive. That, that, I love that song. I played it today in a CPR course I taught for some FAA safety inspectors. Uh, it's keep that chest moving, uh, switch off frequently so that you don't fatigue, and you will fatigue. It's a very strenuous activity. Um, and if we do that, we, we make a difference. Now, when we do it as professionals, we're doing a lot of it. So we get good at it by doing a lot of cases. Average people are going to do one or two in their lifetime, if that. Uh, so the reality is that we have to make them comfortable. They have to become comfortable doing it. And the more we overtrain them and tell them things like you can break the ribs, you can fracture the xiphoid notch, and all these other what I call boogeyman stories, we scare people. We have to get people to be comfortable doing it. And finally, very important to this issue, is who are they going to be doing it on? Infrequent responders primarily respond to people they know. 90% of the time that someone who's not in our business who does CPR, they know the victim. So it's not like stopping at the mall or at the airport and, and jumping on some stranger. This is somebody they know and care about. So let's get people to the point of comfort. We need to totally revamp the way we do CPR training. We need to downplay this whole issue of certification. It's not required any state union to be certified to do CPR. It's just not required. Some re regulatory bodies require it. Some licensing bodies require it. But it's not required that somebody know to be certified in CPR to help. Uh, so we need to get do a whole revamp of that whole CPR system uh, because if not, we're going to continue to have the tremendously high uh, rate of cardiac arrest death, when in fact we know with a good system in place, we can reduce that by 70, 75%. All right. That's, that's great information. And, and before we wrap it up, uh, Frank, I, I, you've interviewed some people. Is there, is there any particular interview or how many have you done that, that have survived uh, cardiac arrest? I have personally interviewed about 250 victims of cardiac arrest who survived. Primarily thanks to the use of a defibrillator, an AED, an automated defibrillator. Uh, the youngest was 11. The oldest was 70. Uh, the average age was probably in their 40s and 50s. A lot of, and, of course, they're very grateful to be alive. They're very thankful that the people on scene were able to help them. Uh, but often that person on scene was one of us, was, a, was a health, an emergency care professional, a physician. A, a lawyer I met recently, he was playing basketball in the Poconos. He collapsed on the court next to him was an ER doc on vacation. And an AED had just been donated to the school. So, I mean, that, and that's great, and I'm grateful for him. But luck is not a strategy for success. We really need to relook at this, the way we're preparing people for sudden cardiac arrest and get more of them prepared and get them comfortable enough to do it. But I, as you say, when I, there are always emotional moments when I'm talking to survivors. Um, I've had the great joy of talking to three people who I worked on and survived. And one of them was a beautiful 50-year-old woman. Uh, who I met by doing CPR on her at the Philadelphia airport several years ago. Uh, and she's doing quite well. Uh, so it, it's a matter of preparation, of getting people comfortable, of realizing what's going on, and being ready to respond. I, I think public information, getting, getting the word out there is vitally important. I'm grateful for this opportunity to use your show to help get that word out there about being properly prepared. But being improperly prepared is dangerous. And Go back to the original question. Forget about coughing CPR. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's dangerous. Excellent. Excellent presentation, Frank. I really appreciate that. And I guess I'm going to come clean. And one of the persons that we worked on at uh, Crozier Chester Medical Center, 
uh, uh, gave me a, a bottle of Crown Royal every Christmas until he died because we brought him we brought him back. I never shared it with you, but I guess I'm getting old now, so I, my conscience is bothering me. Well, so you thank you. Sure, you didn't share the Crown Royal either. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> So thank you for, for, for that presentation. I think it had to be said. And, and of course, there's reason for why people think they might be having cardiac arrest. It could be a, a tachycardia. It could be ventricular uh, extracystoles, extra whatever. But if you're having a true cardiac arrest, you're down and you're out and you need you need help. All right. So, Frank, if, if you wouldn't mind, could you stay on for a while? Because our next guest is going to talk about something that uh, is uh, might might interest you a lot. Uh, and and I, I told you before the show that uh, Dr. The, the Dr. Ron Unfiltered Uncensored has changed the focus, and we want to make sure that we uh, give our listeners enough information so they can be the CEO of their own bodies, so they can make the right decisions for themselves and their family, or at least have a place to go to hear information they're not going to hear on the on the nightly news or from the mainstream media, and and. Even though Dr. Powers, who I'm going to introduce shortly, has nothing to do with this, but medical error, ladies and gentlemen, is the third leading cause of death in the United States. I mean, that's irrefutable. And it's not reported, okay? Cancer and heart disease are, and they get all the money. And I'm going to tell you something else. There have been no deaths from vitamins in 2011. There were three deaths from vitamins in 2004, 106,000 deaths every year from pharmaceutical drugs properly prescribed. There are between 76,000 and 137,000 deaths from pharmaceutical drugs every year in hospitalized patients. So who are the quacks in in this whole scenario? I'm not going to go into more about that because we did a program on that a month ago. But I think it, it, it is apropos about what we're going to be talking about tonight, about the licensing of nurse practitioners. And we'll have Dr. Powers talk about that. But family physicians, ladies and gentlemen, have a graduate level of education of four years. They have a three-year residency and fellowship training. And their total patient care hours through training can add up to ten to 12,000 hours. Now, contrast that with graduate-level education of a nurse practitioner of two to four years, no residency, and total patient care hours through training, five to 700. So if doctors are the third leading cause of death, what do you think will happen uh, if the, if, uh, the nurse practitioners uh, do not have to work under uh, doctor's supervision, and to discuss that, we're going to have Dr. Powers. Dr. Powers is the president of the Pennsylvania Medical Society. She earned her medical degree in Albany Medical College through a combined biomedical program. She's professionally held positions at Emory University School of Medicine and Emory Healthcare in Georgia, where she was the teacher of the year for anesthesiology residents, as well as the director of liver transplant anesthesiology. She has worked for the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center on the liver transplant team and the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Also in Pittsburgh, she worked for Allegheny General Hospital, directing anesthesia research and teaching. While working within the scientific community, Dr. Powers conducted research to develop several pharmaceuticals. Dr. Powers is board certified in anesthesiology and works at Penn uh, Penn Highlights Hospital. 
system. She also provides anesthesia services for rural independent physician-owned surgery centers. With that, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Powers. Dr. Powers, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing this evening? We're doing a lot better than last week, aren't we? We're actually on the air. Yeah, we are. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And we're not wasting your time or or Frank's time. Just as an aside, um, there was a Peter Safar at University of Pittsburgh, and I trained with him. And I think he wrote wrote the foreword to your book, didn't he, Frank? Yes, he did. Actually, he was um, a professor emeritus of anesthesia when I was doing my training, and he actually taught me some of the intraoperative cases. I worked on some cases in the OR with him, and uh, he really shaped – he really shaped that the department, and we also credited him at the time with kind of inventing CPR, at least moving it very far down the road. Yeah, he was amazing. Yeah, he, he was the inventor, and he was an yeah. unbelievably brilliant, brilliant man and a, and a great gift to the world. Yeah, and uh, he, he, was, he was an incredible instructor. I mean, I remember so many pearls of wisdom that he passed on to us as, as residents. He was wonderful. Yeah, I remember getting on Allegheny Airlines from Philadelphia to go up to, to study with him Jeez, yeah, many years ago. Well, Dr. Powers, can you just enlighten us about this, uh, what's happening in Pennsylvania uh, with the bills being introduced in the, into the Congress there about nurse practitioners and how they want to be uh, actually uh, be able to practice on their own without any uh, supervision? Could you just let our audience give, give us a, an idea of what's happening well, it's happening in Pennsylvania as well as other states in the nation, but in, in Pennsylvania in particular, we have a situation where nurse practitioners are allowed to practice, diagnose, prescribe, but there is a requirement that there exists a collaborative agreement with a physician so that the nurse practitioner has available to that, the nurse practitioner, um, a doctor to consult with, to have um, available with, with patient care. And there is a push now coming from some members of the nurse practitioner community that they feel that collaborative agreement should not be required, and they're trying to get that requirement removed in our state. And, and uh, where where are they now? I mean, uh, did they not only want to get rid of the collaborative agreement, but they would like to uh, have a private offices. Am I wrong or right? Yeah, I, I think I think they're pushing to practice in a sense as physicians to have the same um, authority as a physician would have, with as you said, far less training. And um, the the Medical Society of Pennsylvania, our members have been pretty consistent over the years. They've never wavered from this. The the membership of the Pennsylvania Medical Society feels that this would not be in the best interest of patient care if if those um, policies of requiring a collaborative agreement were to be removed. And we have our reasoning, of course. So uh, and is it, it's happening in, in other states uh, as well. Yeah, there are states where um, there's from throughout the country of what different states have done. Um, slightly more than half still require some kind of collaboration or involvement of a physician with a nurse practitioner, um, but a a fairly large number are also uh, in the stages of removing those requirements or doing away with them altogether. Well. What 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 is the Pennsylvania Medical Society doing? What can the listeners in Pennsylvania do to uh, 
help the Pennsylvania Medical Society in its cause. So they, they have to, the nurse practitioners must have supervision by a, a, a licensed physician. Right. Well, what we're we're working mainly to educate um, to educate legislators and the public <clears throat> about why we feel that this is not a good idea for patient care. I mean, as you mentioned in the introduction, there's a huge difference in the amount of training that between a physician and a nurse practitioner. We, uh, on average, physicians have somewhere between twelve and fifteen thousand of twelve and fifteen thousand hours of clinical training taking care of patients where that physician in training is supervised. So a physician going through the training process is overseen for 12 to 15,000 hours as they take mm-hmm. care of patients by other physicians and senior doctors. A nurse practitioner goes through seven, about seven to 800 hours. In addition, the training given to a physician is far more in-depth. The physicians spend a lot more years in school, and the coursework that they take goes far more into depth about disease processes, the theories of what is going on, the actual um, molecular, biochemical, physical um, processes that are felt to underlie the disease, the theories behind the treatments, the parameters under which the treatments are and are not appropriate, the other issues that need to be considered for a patient when you're trying to evaluate them. And that level of training and understanding just doesn't happen with the nurse practitioners. That does not mean that the nurse practitioners are not valuable parts of the care team. The policy is not that nurse practitioners should not be involved in patient care. It's that they don't have the training, the expertise, and the depth of understanding to take care of patients without some kind of collaboration with a physician. Because patients don't walk in with a sign that says, my problem is simple, you don't have to know a whole lot to keep me safe. They walk in with a problem, and they rely on the expertise of the healthcare professional that they are seeing to understand when the problem is simple, when it is slightly more complicated, or when it's truly life-threatening. And to have that practitioner know how you diagnose, how you intervene, and how you differentiate. That takes years of experience, years of training, years of supervision, and a fairly complex level of understanding of what is causing the disease. And we just think it's not fair to patients to remove that and say, a pa- you know, any particular patient doesn't deserve that level of, of expertise when they go see a, a doctor um, or, or a healthcare professional. And so our position is valuable member of the healthcare team but in the context of they can't um, that that they that they have someone else available for a complex patient, a confusing picture, um, something that is out of the ordinary or that needs additional um, additional understanding to make the right diagnosis and render the right care. So, do you think the uh, is this getting enough publicity in Pennsylvania that the average person uh, knows about what's going on? I don't I think we could do a better job of getting the word out. We're certainly trying to become more involved and become better um communicators. Uh I think physicians sometimes have the feeling that something is so obvious we shouldn't need to say it. And unfortunately, I think what what all of us have learned is that just because something seems obvious to us, if we don't take the time to educate, to interact and to explain, other people have busy lives. They've got other interests. They, most people don't think about their health till they're sick. 
And so they're living very active, busy lives, maybe pursuing a degree, maybe you know playing sports, involved in raising a family, starting a career. They're not thinking about who they're going to see if they get sick. And we do have to do a better job as physicians in trying to educate people and get the word out. And we are trying to work in that direction. We're, we're, we're definitely... Um, we're definitely moving in the direction of doing a better job of, of communicating. Yeah. But well, there's, there, there's a journal out called Policy, Politics, and Nursing Practice. And they published recently an article highlighting the potential crisis in nurse practitioner preparation in the United States. And from that article, it said, every day patients in the United States are being denied access to physician-led care and are often directed to a nursing practitioner as they are told, they can do everything the physician can without the, right. the without the patient actually knowing what's going on. Yeah, we have a we had a law that passed here several years ago that said that uh, a healthcare practitioner has to have their degree prominently displayed. So uh, one of the things that was happening is people didn't know if they were what level of training the person taking care of them had, and. Um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, there were practitioners who weren't physicians who were kind of um, obscuring the fact that they weren't doctors. And right. so patients were seeing people, they would come, they would say, my doctor said this or my doctor said that, and you would reach out to the person and find out it actually wasn't a physician they were seeing. And I I have a kind of a pet peeve with the talk about uh, non-physicians or nurse practitioners or what we call mid-levels being set said that they're going to be a solution for rural access problems because right now I have a very rural practice. I spent many years working in urban centers and at large academic institutions, but right now uh, my practice is primarily rural in what you could call physician underserved areas. And I actually have come to the conclusion based on that, the last place you should send an unsupervised practitioner is in an area without many doctors. Uh, if you're going to have a problem missed or misdiagnosed or something um, maybe not properly handled, you don't want it to be somewhere where there are not enough physicians for a physician to catch it. And I have kind of pushed back sometimes and said, don't tell me that because a patient is rural, they de deserve a different standard of care. If anything, I think you, we should be more stringent in rural areas because it's more important when you don't have a lot of doctors that there is a physician available for complex patients or, or care that seems um, difficult. And there have been some studies that have come out that have actually shown that now there's not a lot of studies, but, um, but there have been some that are starting to document some of the problems with this difference in training being um, ignored. Uh, there was a study that came out of the Mayo Clinic, and what they did was they, they, they looked at referrals of patients to what are called tertiary care centers, which are hospitals with um, very high levels of expertise and a very broad depth of specialties available. So a patient may have a problem, and they're eventually referred to a tertiary care hospital. And what they did was they looked at referrals coming from nurse practitioners and referrals coming from physicians, and they had a panel that evaluated the referrals, whether they were appropriate, whether the patient had been um, treated properly on prior to the referral, whether they had been diagnosed properly, had been having the proper tests and the proper therapy, and they blinded the reviewers to whether it was a nurse practitioner or a physician who had been taking care of the patient prior to the referral. 
and um, it, it was a it was a pretty dramatic difference in um, in the um, the the um, conclusion of the panel that basically there was a it was dramatic that the physician patient the patients who had been seen and followed by physicians um, had much more appropriate care evaluation therapy and referrals. In other words, it was appropriate that they were being referred. And that's not to say that nurse practitioners, again, aren't a valuable part of the team. It's just they're doing something beyond their level of training, and it's not fair to the patient. So that kind of also throws a monkey wrench into this whole idea of, well, it'll be cheaper. We can, uh, we can get care and we can lower the cost. If we're doing inappropriate care or unnecessary testing or missing appropriate tests and delaying treatment, in the long run, you're not only probably going to spend more money, you're going to be harming patients as well as spending more money. So we have to use common sense, knowledge, and the science of what's really going on in medical care to make appropriate policy decisions. And that's the last uh, chapter in my book that I'm writing, How to Die Young at an Old Age. It's called Common Sense. And that's so important. It really is so important. And I found even though I'm not actively practicing now, I have, I am in touch with a lot of physicians that the nurse practitioners order a lot of testing, right? Uh, just because they don't know, they they can't zero in and they don't do a they good can't examination. So yeah, they, they can't just want to Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. you know, if you spend 12,000 hours taking care of patients, being supervised by an older physician, more experienced physician, you learn clinical signs, you learn the questions, you learn the diseases, you learn the processes. A well-trained doctor can often make a diagnosis with no testing, whereas somebody who's less well-trained or less experienced has to rely on all sorts of tests because they don't have the clinical understanding to say this is what the disease probably is. And I think one of the mistakes we are making in American medicine is not giving physicians enough time to practice to the level of their training. I mean, sometimes if you give a doctor a little more time to do a little more questioning and physical exam, you'll, you'd save a lot of testing. I think you would agree with that. Um, yes. You know, it's, it's rushing these patients through, you know, eight minutes, ten minutes, and then you say, why do you have to do so many tests? Because you have an expert who didn't get the 20 extra minutes that they needed to make the diagnosis. And um, and then if you try to do the same thing with people who don't have the same level of training, all you're doing is running a testing mill. You know? I, I told the students that came used to come to my office that the majority of time, a good history, right. uh, when it's done properly, you sort of know exactly what you're dealing with before you put your hands on the patient. Exactly. And, and at my 50th reunion, I told the class that uh, the, the paradigm today seems to be, well, all the tests are normal. Let's go examine the patient. Yeah. And, uh, oh, there's a, there's a fascinating story of, um, that was written in, in one of our journals, the Journal of the American Medical Association, where a woman was complaining of chest pain and had a, a total cardiac workup that was negative. And finally, at the bedside one day, somebody pulled the gown down and saw the rash of herpes of, uh, of varicella. Zoster shingles. Yeah, zoster. She had shingles. <laughs> and so the whole time she was complaining of chest pain, nobody had looked at her chest. <laughs> she had an, an, an entire cardiac workup. I would say, that's yes, that's a problem. Um, and that showed up in the journal because the person writing it was saying, we need to really go back to the time where the doctor took the time to talk to the patient examine the patient, 
and come to a conclusion and then only order tests if you needed a test to decide between disease A and disease B. So, Dr. Powers, can the what website would you recommend uh, our listeners to go to in Pennsylvania to get a little bit more education? Uh, well, on- actually, the Pennsylvania Medical Society has a good website, and we do have information on this. And our website is pamedsoc.org. So, p-a-m-e-d-s-o-c.org, and there are links there that um, discuss discuss our positions, why we, what our policies are, and there's some, um, some information. It's, it's aimed toward both physicians and the public. And, and I came across a, an organization in preparation for this show called Physicians for Patient Protection. Yeah. And they're trying to show transparency regarding healthcare practitioners, and they are fighting to uphold the highest standards of patient care. So, uh, our, our listeners can look uh, look up that uh, organization, Physicians for Patient Protection. Well, that's Protection. national. I think yes. that's a national. Yeah, that's it national. Is. And they're they're right. actually excellent. They're doing a lot of very good work. And uh, and then go to the Pennsylvania Medical Society uh, website, which is p-a-m-e-d-s-o-c dot org, and, and and just educate yourself on this. And uh, I, I you know if I was in Pennsylvania, I would be telling you to go you know, call your uh, local congressman. Uh, because politics it all starts from the bottom up, so call call the your local guy or local woman and uh, complain about it. You want to be treated by a doctor. You're going to be paying the same price, or maybe more, if the diagnosis is missed. So right. Well, and the thing is, again, it isn't it isn't that nurse practitioners are not a valuable part of the care team. Nobody is saying, or I don't, I'm not aware of anybody who's saying they shouldn't be part of the healthcare delivery system. What what our, what the, what our position is is every patient should have available to them somebody with the highest level of training possible because you never know what patient is going to be the one that needs that highest level of training. As I said, patients don't walk in with a sign that says my problem is simple. You don't need to know. You don't need to know that extra ten thousand hours to diagnose me. And you, I'm sure you've seen this. You've seen someone who walks in, it looks like a simple problem, and all of a sudden, you know, they're being told you've got to get to the nearest hospital. You know, there, there's there's things that present simply but are actually very serious. Well, I just had an, a, an episode with a, with a relative uh, who had uh, a stake in his esophagus, and uh, little, little did the person know that was doing the gastroscopy, he had perforated the esophagus. Wow, and uh, he made it worse. And thank God for Thomas Jefferson University Hospital; they saved his life. Yeah, uh, you know. But that, Frank, you 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 brought up something interesting prior to the show about malpractice and lawsuits or nurse practitioners. Do you want to ask Dr. Powers? The Frank's still there. And, uh, Frank was was saying that uh, nurse. Are you are you still there? He was muted. Yeah, I'm still here. I'm sorry. Um, the, I'm not practicing anymore, so I make that clear, uh, and I'm sort of sort of retired. Uh, but my information in talking to some of the nurse practitioners I know is that lawsuits against the nurse practitioners are, are far less, even though most of them have their own insurance, than than against physicians. Uh, also, I want to preface what I say by I, I agree with uh, Dr. Powers. I, as a nurse for 52 years, I've always believed the physician's captain of the ship. And I think that um, 
you know, many of the issues you're discussing here, we went through when we were initiating paramedic programs. Uh, and the ultimate solution, which was a battle, was that we would have medical control of paramedics. There were those who subscribed to independent practice paramedics, and, of course, I always thought that was a disaster. And I agree that we need physician leadership. I think there needs to be a, a real good established standard of care and a, a, a table of organization to maintain that standard of care so that people aren't trying to do things that are beyond their ability. Um, and the, the issues of lawsuits is going to be one of, of, of that supervision of the standard of care. Uh, obviously, none, none of us are perfect, but we have to make sure that we have, it, have that established standard and that it's not just being developed by the academician. Um, there's clearly a big push to train more nurses as nurse practitioners, and that, a lot of that push is coming from the academic institutions. Uh, so I think there has to be a, a, a well-rounded look at this whole issue. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I've seen nurse practitioners and I've seen physicians. And what I like in nurse practitioners is when they know when to punt. When they know they can handle it, they do. When they can't, they need to know how to punt. Uh, and I think that's something that has to be well-established in that standard of care. And I have to say, in, uh, the line, along the lines of punting, I have had conversations with individuals, nurse practitioners. They don't want to do away with a collaborative agreement. Um, there are people who will say, I want to have the physician available. I don't want to feel pressured to work without a physician available to me. So um, I don't know if anyone has actually looked into the percentage of nurse practitioners that actually are more comfortable with a collaborative agreement and would prefer not to have that change. But um, certainly I have had discussions with individuals who have said, I would, I, I'm, I'm not one of the people pushing for this. I, I would rather be in an environment where the physician is available and kind of I'm required to have a physician there. Uh, Dr. Powell, this, there's a couple people here who may have a question. Um, on line two, 86, did you have a question for Dr. Powers or Aliasco? Um, Basically, what is the main difference between a PA and a physician assistant? I think Dr. Dr. Powers. Oh. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not an expert, so you're going to get my understanding. And my my understanding is that a nurse practitioner. Um, gets a, an, an undergraduate degree that usually has a basis in nursing. So they have a bachelor's degree in nursing or a diploma or an associate's degree in nursing. And then they go beyond that and take an additional degree program that gives them the nurse practitioner degree. And they can get either a master's level and their programs that are called doctorates. Some of those are done online. A physician's assistant, my understanding is they can go through in kind of any kind of background in um, with a with a with a with an undergraduate college degree, and then they take um, I think a, a structured I, I believe it's two year course it may be more that um, is is more um, broadly based sort of in medicine and physiology. And their training is more along the lines of working under physicians or with physicians. Um, so I think I think one is from more of a nursing background. The other is more of a um, 
a, a, I don't want to use the word medical, not that nursing isn't medical, but it, it's more more of a sort of a a light version of um, of a medical um, degree. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think transparency. That's a word that you had mentioned. I think that's really important. Uh, you know, we need to know uh, the education and the background of the person treating the the client, the patient. Now, so I think that's that's going to be an important part of the of, of solving the problem. Well, yeah. As I said, in Pennsylvania, it's it's required. You need to have something that identifies you and what your degree is. So it it needs to say either physician or physician's assistant or certified registered you know nurse practitioner, and um, so that the patient is aware of who they're interacting with. And it's at all levels. I mean, registered nurses have to say registered nurses, LPNs. Those titles have to be on the um, name tag or in some in some place that identified so that the patient can see uh, who it is they're interacting with. I mean, the healthcare system now has become very complicated. We have many people at many different levels that are very important um, in the healthcare delivery system. And um, patients can get confused, you know. It used to be you kind of could tell by the white coat or the scrubs or whatever, but patients would get very confused now. Um, yeah. the, the, you know, we have people coming in for dietary assistance. The pharmacists come around. Um, of course, you have all the, the different levels of nursing. You have the different levels of medical training. And I think it can get very hard for a, a patient, particularly someone having complex or long-term issues that they're getting care for. And um, it's important that they at least have an understanding of who it is that they're interacting with and who it is that's giving them advice. Well, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, discussion, and I think one that has to be uh, further identified. And, and somehow, uh, the patient, the, the patient has to know who's, who's, who's treating them, who has the stethoscope around their neck, what their training is. Did they get their degree online? I mean, that is scary. Uh, I think you... over half, yeah, half of the, I think more than half of the NP schools now are done online. That's really scary when you before you touch a patient. I know uh, in Spain, after two years of uh, college, you go right to medical school and they never see a patient and they get a degree. Yeah, and that's why a lot of the Europeans are always would always come to America for treatment. Uh, same in my home country of Italy. I say you know two years of college, you can go right to medical school. Doesn't mean they're not good, but they don't have the level of expertise as the as the American trained. Uh, Doctor. So, uh, Dr. Powers, uh, if we had to wrap it up, so what? What would you say to our listeners? What 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 advice should they do? Should they they should look at the website? What what do you advise them to do to, so we can help to get some clarity with, for uh, nurse practitioners and, the, and whether they should be licensed? Well, I think in their own care, when they go to see a practice or see a practitioner, they should ask, you know, who they're seeing. They should establish a relationship with the either the the group that's taking care of them or the individual um, physician, and make sure that they feel comfortable with who it is that is giving them their care. I think they should also be willing to advocate for themselves. I know people who tell me I wanted to see the doctor, but they told me I couldn't. I think the patient should feel comfortable speaking up and saying no. I would like to see the physician or. 
no, I, you know, I feel comfortable seeing, you know, your your nurse practitioner, but the patient should should be willing to advocate for themselves. And then in discussions with policymakers, they should make their wishes known as to what they feel is important for their care. And I think most people would say they want to have the highest level of training available when they need when they need um healthcare or when they need an intervention from from the medical system. And uh and then keep yourself informed, pay attention to what's going on and uh and dialogue with other individuals, share stories, that kind of stuff. It's important. Very very important. In fact, I think this information is so important. I'm going to uh run this program again Thursday night at seven PM. Uh just to get it out there so more uh, of our of the listeners in the podcast arena. And we're on Spotify and iHeartRadio, Apple uh, podcast. We're we're on TuneIn Radio. We're on Google Play. So we you know, we want to get more and more people to be uh, knowledgeable about this since the you know, the subtitle of our program is, is be the CEO of your own body and get educated exactly. about what you can do. So we we'll, we will run this program again and uh and at some later date, I do uh, did reach out to uh, physicians for patient protection, so they they're going to send somebody to be interviewed. So I think we'll just continue this type of discussion uh, into the future, and then uh, maybe in a little while I, I can t- uh, get in touch with you and we can see where where we are. Maybe in a, in a few months. That would be great, and thank you for all you're doing to uh, to continue the dialogue. It's an important uh, one. Thank you. Uh, and I t- thank you for your time. So, Dr. Powers. <laughs> that can go on and on, and she deserves it, but we're running out of time. So, Dr. Powers, thank you so very much, and God yeah. bless. Um, thank you. So, Frank, Frank uh, did you, how did you feel about all of this? Well, I, I agree with, with most of what the doctor said. I think that if we're talking about the delivery of medical care, we're talking about physician oversight. And uh, there are a number of things that can be done by what are affectionately referred to as physician extenders. And uh, a lot of people don't like that term because they feel it's demeaning. I think it's it's more accurate. Um, but clearly there needs to be some, some established standards of care uh, and then within that standard, leadership and referral. Um, right. So I'm, you know, I'm not opposed to what's being said. I, I do. I've watched nurse practitioners in action, and, and I, I've admired what they do, both in the emergency room and, and in private practices. But um, it, there's no question that they are a valuable asset to the team, as Dr. Power said. It's how they're being managed and and who's leading that whole effort that really is ultimately going to make the difference. Exactly. I think you, you, you summarized it beautifully. So ladies and gentlemen, you uh, listened in the beginning of the show to Mr. Frank Polyofka talk about some of the fallacies of CPR. And then we followed up with Dr. Powers, president of the Pennsylvania medical society discussing uh, nurse practitioners and uh, uh, their collaborative agreements. So we will follow up with this uh, with with future programs and with an, with the organization called Physicians for Practice Protection uh, that is uh, pushing for transparency in in, uh, in the person that's treating you so you know exactly who's treating you and what their education is. 
And next week, ladies and gentlemen, we really have to make up some time. So we will not have a single guest. I've asked uh, Frank Polyovko, uh, who's uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. He's traveled the world. He's a, he's a uh, uh, state-of-the-art magician of all things. Uh, he, he's, he is the, the expert on CPR, t- teaching CPR on oil rigs, airplanes, what have you, and being a brilliant nurse to start with. So uh, I've asked him to come back, and he has some things he'd like to talk about. I want to just bring, a, bring you up to date next week on some drug interactions. Uh, I want to talk to you about getting too many CAT scans. Uh, there, there's a group out there that has measured the radiation of uh, CAT scans, just like a group that measured mammograms, every 500 mammograms can result in one carcinoma. So you're not going to hear that from the surgeon, but uh, I'll give you the, the documentation for that next week. Uh, so uh, uh, there's just so much going on and that you're just not going to hear on the, on the mainstream news, uh, especially with drugs. And the, I told you in the beginning of September about Zantac and the cancer-causing ingredient in it. And now it's just making the headlines now. So I want to revisit that, revisit acid reflux drugs, because they have some devious side effects, ladies and gentlemen. And um, there are drugs that kill, sorry to say. So with that, um, we will look forward to talking about also coffee. And as you know, I feel that inflammation is the uh, basis of most chronic chronic diseases. And ladies and gentlemen, do you think your cells and your body can be renewed? And maybe we'll have time to talk about that also. So with that, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, thank you, callers, for some of the questions I couldn't get to. Uh, so I appreciate your listening. And, uh, Frank, thank you so much. And uh, I will catch up with you during the week. So thank you so much. Look forward to it. Look forward to it. Thank you for having me. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Dr. Ron, Unfiltered, Uncensored, with Dr. Ron and Dr. Jerry. We are here each and every week to bring you medical news that you can use and medical news that you will not hear on the mainstream media. We hope you enjoy our podcast and we hope to see you on the radio next week. Have a great one. Ciao.